Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 418, God's Chosen. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to an episode about the long-term effects of the conquest. Because, believe it or not, you can draw a straight line between figures in the conquest and some of the wealthiest people in the UK today. And I'm not talking about Charles. I'm talking about people who you might think are just business people and not the direct inheritors of land that was stolen nearly a thousand years ago. But Z got a wild hair and started to do some digging. And it turned out that they still make money the way that their ancestors did. Here's a clip. There's this guy, as far as we know, shows up in 1067. Might have been there earlier, but probably he was definitely there by 1067. William de Percy. Mm-hmm. So at the time of the Doomsday Book, he's holding 30 knight's fees. So have we talked in the show what a knight's fee is yet? No, actually, we haven't. Do you want to run them through that really quick? It's their term for the unit of land needed to support a knight. And so that's not like just this one guy's diet. That's like his family, his servants. These are sort of minor estates. So significant. Um, and, you know, he wasn't born into them. William gave it to him. Some of these specifically... I wonder where they came from. Well, <laughs> wouldn't you ask? Some of them came specifically from a Saxon lady. So she held them. So she was... Well, that so, was nice of her. Yeah. It doesn't seem like she gave them up. However, to assuage his guilt, he married her later. So that's nice. Mm. So this guy's pretty rich just after the conquest. A little bit later, he gets even richer when our second guy... A guy named Hugh Lupus. Hugh has a good turn of fortune. He's a good buddy of William the Conqueror's. Good enough that William the Conqueror names Hugh Lupus Earl of Chester. That's a lot of stuff. So he gives some of his stuff over to Will of Percy, specifically the estate of Whitby in Yorkshire. Okay. So after the harrying, that's when he gets really rich. So he picks up even more land from the earldom of Chester after that point, because presumably less people are on it to fight him off. Oh, yeah. By Doomsday 1086, William de Percy is tenant-in-chief to 118 manors in Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, and other lands. And he's got some other lands in Essex and Hampshire. So he finances two abbeys at least, builds a couple of castles, owns 118 manors, mostly in the northern tracts. Now... William de Percy's descendant, it's not entirely direct ascendancy because there's there are points where the line became maternal. So mm-hmm. it was like a female hereditary line because daughters came in enough that a few men who were the actual heirs actually adopted the Percy name. But it's still the same genetic it's, line. It's still the same. It's the line. Like, like these lands have been passed through this family. Just in some cases, it was through the female line, which uh, matters to these people. Um, but the, the current heir in this case is a guy named Ralph Percy. He's got like five other names. I'm going to call him Ralph. Okay. Just Sir like Ralph. Sir Ralph. Yeah. yeah, he is actually a Sir Ralph. But our modern Sir Ralph, he's the 12th Duke of Northumberland. He owns currently today multiple castles, good for him, parks, and 100,000 acres of productive land with approximately 100 tenant farmers um, in Northumberland. So that's that's him yeah, and the people who are making food in his area. 
a good chunk of their profits go to him as the owner of the land. They, the, they who are working the land do not own 100% of what's coming in. And so, yeah, they pay rent. He sits in one of his many castles and collects rent on the people who are farming the land. Still, that's how he's making his money. Um, it's nice when you can uh, be a part of living history. <laughs> <laughs> so the other guy, Hugh Lupus, um, well, his descendant just got engaged. Yay! Oh, that's good very for them. sweet. And at the ripe old age of 32, holds a real estate empire of 9.5 billion British pounds. And so if you're interested in listening to an episode about how your landlord might be the ancestor of one of William's best friends, you can listen to that episode and all the other episodes on the members feed by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for far less than what that guy wants to charge you for a flat and bath. And thank you very much to Kevin, Rena, and Deborah for signing up already. When we left off, William, satisfied with the damage that he'd inflicted upon the people of the north, was marching south towards Chester. And as he rode off, King Malcolm III of Scotland took the opportunity to ravage what was left of Northumbria. But William didn't seem to mind, given that he made no effort to put a stop to it. And instead, he kept pressing south. And he must have been pretty intent on his plan, because honestly, turning around would have been the easiest and best course of action for his army. After all, it was still winter, and they were marching through unfamiliar territory, which meant they didn't know the best way to get from the Tyne to Chester. And actually, they were going the hard way. And by hard way, I mean William opted to cross the Pennines. For those of you who don't live in the area, these are a series of hills and valleys running from the Midlands up to the Scottish border. They're absolutely gorgeous at any time of the year, but they're also difficult to cross on foot or on horseback. Now the Pennines were carved out of the land by ancient glaciers as they advanced and retreated during the Ice Ages. And this terrain is as complex as its past. And for every gentle sloping hill, there are rocky cliffs. And for every dewy valley, a steep ravine. And throughout this entire fractured landscape are an abundance of rivers and creeks. And all of this is to say that if you're looking for a pretty place to break your leg, the Pennines have you covered. And William and his army were trying to traverse all of this on horseback in winter. And keep in mind that these guys weren't exactly great at trekking through the wilderness. I mean, it had taken them weeks just to figure out how to cross the ooze. And yet, this invading army was now picking its way south through some of the most rugged and difficult to cross territory that Britain has to offer. And even if there was a break in all the winter rain, they still would have spent large portions of this trip soaking wet due to all the damn waterways that they had to cross. It was so bad, in fact, that Poitiers, preserved through Orderic, waxes poetic on how despondent and discontent William's army had become in the face of English weather and English terrain. And actually, the environment wasn't the only thing impacting their spirit. Morale was also collapsing due to, quote, the terrible fierceness of the enemy, end quote. 
which suggests that as they were trekking through the north and trying to avoid frostbite, they were also subject to blistering attacks from the Northumbrians. Now, we're not given any details about this apparent guerrilla war that was waged around William. But this was Northumbria, and there were plenty of bands of wildmen out there. So I think it's a safe bet to assume that they were facing ambushes, night attacks, and all manner of other asymmetrical tactics that are so very effective in situations like this. And if fending off furious locals during a freezing rainstorm in the freaking Pennines wasn't bad enough, there was also the issue of provisions. It's a famous saying that an army marches on its stomach. And when you spend months upon months systematically destroying the food production of the North, and then burning all the stored provisions left over just to be a dick, well, eventually, there won't be any food left for your army to steal. And, well, it turned out that as William and his army were traipsing through the Pennines, those chickens were coming home to roost. And by chickens, I mean nothing at all, because they'd already killed all the chickens. And the cows, the pigs, the rye, the wheat, the apples, you get the idea. So William wasn't leading much of a victory march. This was just a long train of soggy, shivering, and starving nights. And while there's no mention of an outbreak of dysentery, we can hope. And adding to the morale problem was the tiny fact that this campaign had been a disgusting display of violence and cruelty, even by the standards of the time. What this army had done was monstrous. And I'm not talking about modern morals here. This had gone against their own culture as well. Now, of course, that hadn't stopped the knights from doing these things. They were still violent horse bros. But they did have a code, and they were part of a chivalric culture. And I suspect that they were also just starting to rub up against the fact that they were also, you know, human beings. And the atrocities that they had committed repeatedly were probably starting to feel a little different now that they had time to think about it in the cold, freezing rain. And here they were, being dragged through yet more difficult and hostile territory because William wanted to carry out another campaign of extermination. And that, it turned out, was the straw that broke the camel's back. The army was so unhappy with this that they went before the king and vehemently demanded that they be released from their duties. They complained about their circumstances and told him that his campaign was intolerable and pointed out that it was far worse than guarding castles, which, you know, was generally what their job description included. And that was just the opening volley. They also told William that, quote, they could not serve under a lord who was venturing on enterprises which were unexampled and out of all reason, nor carry into effect impracticable orders, end quote. Even William's knights had recognized that the bastard had lost his damn mind. And when medieval French knights are telling you that you're too violent, you've obviously gone way too far. Now, we are assured that these malcontents were just the knights from Anjou, Brittany, and Maine. We're told that the Norman knights were loyal and therefore totally down for William's war. 
and the text of this record, presumably Poitiers' language, suggests that the dissenting knights lacked character, while the Norman knights had proper moral fiber. And the truth of it is, we don't know if it really played out this way or not. Oftentimes, Poitiers pins any and all dissent on the foreign troops and deliberately portrays the Normans as ride or die for Bill. This was the case at Hastings. This was the case after Hastings. And here we see Poitiers doing it again. But of course, it is possible that Poitiers was telling the truth and that the Norman knights were much more down for all of this than everybody else. And if that's the case, yikes. Either way, though, William had a problem on his hands because yet again, he was facing mutiny. And unlike the whole incident at St. Valery, this time he wasn't going to be able to boost morale by digging up a holy corpse. And he was actually running out of options here. I mean, keep in mind, he had recently been forced to allow a bunch of his knights to go home. And when they'd asked, he first tried to shame them. And when that didn't work, he'd offered bribes. But overall, it had been a tough sell back then because apparently the wives said that if the knights didn't come home right now, they were going to hook up with Sir Steve. So a bunch of them bailed and headed home before Steve could get there. But not all of them. I guess some of the knights were unmarried or were more motivated by William's promises of riches or were kind of into the Sir Steve situation. I'm not judging. But the point is that the guys who remained were likely to be the most ruthless and avaricious knights available. And these were the guys that William was riding with right now. And this campaign had been too much even for them, despite the bribes they received. And in general, William really only had two tools in his toolbox, bribery and violence. And neither would work in this situation. But William did have one other option. A weapon of last resort. A weapon that I thought my mother had invented. William got in front of his men and basically said, fine, fine. I'll take Chester all by myself if I have to. I have no need for cowards or weaklings. And if that's who you are, then I'll be better off without you. And then he turned his back on them and started marching towards Chester. Yeah. William the Bastard is recorded as subjecting his chivalric army to a guilt trip. And when he did it, he just had to hope that, in the stunned group behind him, there were more men who followed him than chose to stand their ground. Because if there were, social pressure and shame would take care of the rest. It was a hell of a gamble. Though Poitiers, ever the hype man, did his best to spin the whole thing. When hearing this story, Poitiers didn't imagine a ruler on the last thread of his authority. He didn't see that William, out of funds, had to resort to emotional manipulation and bluffing. No, Poitiers saw Julius Caesar. I'm not kidding. He really said that. He said that William, like his historical twin from ancient Rome would not, quote, condescend to reconcile them to his service by earnest entreaties or fresh promises, end quote. And instead, he got all huffy and flounced out of the assembly. You know, like Caesar. But this incredibly dumb strategy in a completely stupid situation actually worked. The army shuffled their feet, reluctantly gathered their gear, 
and began following their king south. And William, emboldened by this, insisted that they would press on regardless of the condition of the road. He informed his men that, quote, there was no road to honor but through toilsome exertions, end quote. Essentially, he told Sir Ralph to harden up and make his own road. And bless him, Ralph actually tried. Orderick tells us that the Continental Army, unfamiliar with the landscape and the weather, pressed on and soon found themselves in terrain where there were only local footpaths through the wilderness. And William and his men weren't locals, and they didn't like traveling on foot. And so poor old Glitterhoof was doing her best to make her way, quote, across lofty mountains and deep valleys, rivers and rapid streams, and dangerous quagmires in the hollows of the hills, end quote. And as they did so, they sometimes lost their way due to the sheer deluge of rain that they were dealing with. And when it wasn't raining, it was hailing. I honestly don't know why they kept going. I mean, peer pressure is a hell of a drug, and so is the sunk cost fallacy. So I suppose that Ralph didn't want to be the first one to bail, and figured he'd come this far, so might as well keep going. Plus, he wasn't about to let Sir Philip get the satisfaction of watching him turn around. But then again, this was dire. And then it got worse. You see, they weren't just dealing with rocks and streams. This area is also full of bogs. We're talking about full-scale blanket mires that are deeper than a man. Deeper than a horse, for that matter. And this much peat might be great news if you want to make whiskey, but it's not that great if you're trying to lead your army through it on horseback. Because the horses kept getting stuck. And then, in the panic... They sunk ever deeper, until it became impossible to get them out, while others were breaking their legs on the uneven terrain. And so now, the knights weren't just cold and miserable and hungry. Some of them were also having to walk. On the ground. Like peasants. But there was one small silver lining to all of this. Every time one of the horses died... The army had a chance to grab a bite to eat. Because yeah, they were eating the horses that died in the bogs. I kid you not, that is in the record. And despite all the problems, we are assured that William was dealing with it heroically. Orderick, copying Poitiers, says, quote, The king often led the way on foot with great agility and lent a ready hand to assist others in their difficulties. At length, he conducted his whole force safely to Chester, end quote. And maybe he was on foot. It probably would have made sense to be on foot through a lot of this. But after that detail, it definitely does seem like Poitiers is taking some liberties. I mean, William was already getting a reputation at this point in his life for having a physique of someone who, how can I say this nicely, engaged in stress eating. And let's be honest, his life was pretty damn stressful. And most of his physical exercise appears to have involved sitting on a horse. So I'm not sure how sprightly and agile he actually was when he was on foot. But even if he was running around like Legolas, he clearly did not lead the whole force safely to Chester. 
there was a near mutiny due to how dangerous this trek had been, and they were eating their own boggy horses for f**k's sake. Though, Poitiers did get one detail right. They did reach Chester. And by this point, I think we're familiar with how William and his knights behaved, and what their goals were. And I don't think there's anything gained by morbidly repeating the details that we discussed in the Herring of the North. What William and his men did to Chester was terrible. The Chronicle of Evesham records the arrival of refugees from Cheshire and the other territories that William's army marched through. And of course, William wasn't done yet. Nor was he going to let a few whiny knights slow him down. So, after ravaging the countryside and building and then garrisoning a castle at Chester, the army marched on, heading now to Edric the Wild's backyard, Shrewsbury, where they did the same. They pillaged, they constructed and garrisoned a castle, and then they moved on once again. We're told they marched throughout Mercia and, quote, put down all hostile movements, end quote. And based on what we can see in the Doomsday Book, William appears to have given his forces wide latitude for what qualified as a hostile movement. The damage done was on a scale that you can see it in the Normans' own financial records. About 17 years later, when the Doomsday Book was updated, we see that 10% of Cheshire, Staffordshire, and Derbyshire remained wasted due to the actions of William and his army. And while some historians point out that Cheshire appears to have recovered quicker than Northumbria, that doesn't mean that what Cheshire suffered was somehow restrained or reasonable. We're talking about a literal decimation. One out of ten people gone. Were it not for what we see in the north, which was indeed magnitudes worse, this alone would be worth utter condemnation. And considering William's army were nearly mutinous on their ride south, I really question whether there was any restraint at all here. Instead, William may have been doing as much as he could with a force that had lost interest in being out in the field and were looking to head home and enjoy their loot. But eventually, the king was satisfied, and he brought his army to Salisbury, where he paid his forces with the stolen loot and the stolen land and the stolen positions. And he heaped praise, quote, to all who deserved it, end quote and dismissed them with his thanks. But did he catch that qualifier? That's a hell of a qualifier, right? Especially considering that this was William. He wasn't exactly known as a forgive and forget kind of guy. And it turned out that in his opinion, not everyone deserved praise. In particular, the soldiers who had complained about his tactics and the weather and the condition of the army didn't deserve praise at all. And since they apparently wanted to go home so badly, he declared that they would stay in his service for a period of time. And that period was 40 days. It's a period that carries a lot of weight with our scribes, as it's actually a biblical number that contextually breaks down to a crazy long time. And so I don't know if they actually served 40 days, or if our monks were getting all biblical with their accounting. Either way, though, this was a petty and spiteful action that would only deepen the resentment felt by the knights and the other soldiers affected. But 
Poitier, ever the political boot black, polishes this right up and tells us that this extra 40 days was lenient because the complainers deserved far worse. Eventually, though, William released the remainder of his army. And I think it's notable that one figure we've spoken about in the past, Brian of Brittany, who was William's hand-picked earl over Cornwall and who had been his companion right from the start of all of this, appears to have left England immediately after this campaign. And we know that he was part of William's march north. And we were also told that the Breton were among those who urged William to change course and who were punished rather than rewarded at the end of the harrying. So while we're not told exactly why Brian left, I think we know. And incidentally, his brother, Alan Rufus, didn't seem to have the same scruples. And William must have appreciated that because he gave Alan the honor of Richmond, making him one of the most wealthy landowners in the region. In fact, by the time the Doomsday Book was updated in 1086, there were only two people in England who held more land than he did. One was the king, and the other was the king's half-brother, Robert of Mortain, who was actually given Brian's properties. This is how wealthy dynasties are born. And unfortunately, our records chase wealth and power, not morality. So we know much more about the people who sold their humanity for land than we do about the people who refused to pay that price and balked at the actions instead. It's a terrible flaw in our record and how we generally portray human history. But speaking of those wealthy dynasties, King Malcolm III was now much more wealthy than he'd been a few months earlier, thanks to the generous and non-consensual contributions by the Northumbrians. And he was also entertaining some guests. According to Simeon, Athelwina, after all that time waiting at the harbor in the town that I've been told I've been mispronouncing, but I've also been provided no less than three different pronunciations from people who have assured me that their version is the proper way of saying it. And so until England can get it together, I'm just going to keep calling it Wearmouth. Anyway, so the former bishop, Athelwina, had finally hired a ship and he was headed to Cologne, but he got blown off course and ended up in Scotland instead. And this same gale actually carried another ship, this one holding Edgar the Atheling and his friends and family, though they had actually intended to go to Scotland all along. So Malcolm's court was awash with wealthy Englishmen. And one of them, in particular, was apparently having a big impact on him. The Atheling's sister, Princess Margaret, who was now Queen Margaret of Scotland, well, we're told that under her influence, Malcolm started to chill out and stopped being so f***ing barbaric. And that's not a poetic flourish on my part. That's almost exactly what Simeon says. The dude was really mad at the Scots. But anyway, these two, now he wasn't being so barbaric, began to have children. And because Malcolm was a king, among the children of that union, we would end up seeing no less than three kings, one queen, an abbot of Dunkeld, a countess, and, I assume, a partridge in a pear tree. And as for that countess... She acquired that title because she married the son of our old friend Count Eustace of Boulogne. All of these lines mix in one way or another. It's crazy. But speaking of old Eustace, 
he was back in Williams' court. Now, we're not told how he did this and how he got back in Williams' good graces following that failed rebellion. But whatever it was, it must have been good because Eustace was restored to all of his old English lands. And I wonder if this restoration was more about antipathy towards the English and a desire to have continental figures in positions of power than about any kind of personal forgiveness on the part of William. Because in early 1070, which is where we're at right now, William had decided to strike at what little was left of the English power structure. I mean, sure, they destroyed the North, and they created a famine that was going to devastate England for years. And on top of that, they killed or exiled almost all of the English nobility. Furthermore, the gelds that he was laying upon the public at this point were so high that they hadn't been taxed like this since the days of Canute. And what they couldn't seize through taxes and trials, they were seizing by forcing English heiresses into marriages with Norman men. But that wasn't enough. Because what about the church? There still were a lot of Englishmen wearing fancy hats in England. Something should be done about that. And besides, all that murder and theft in the North had been expensive. And the resulting famine wasn't going to let up anytime soon. So the royal coffers really could use some replenishing. And so William devised a plan. On February 17th of 1070, which was Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, he'd send his officials to deal with these religious communities. And thus, we're told that William, quote, had all the monasteries that were in England plundered, end quote. Now, as you know, there are a lot of lay properties that were incorporated within church possessions. So you might be thinking that maybe William was ordering his sheriffs and officers to seize property of the lay people who paid their taxes to the local abbot, but weren't actually church officials. They just lived on church officials' lands. And if you were thinking that, well, you're getting pretty good at this history thing. But you would also be wrong. The Abington Chronicle tells us directly that William's men plundered both the lay and the ecclesiastical properties. They even took holy Christian treasures. So I guess William and his boys were giving up Christianity for Lent. Now, Orderick tries to lay the blame for all of this at the feet of William's longtime friend, Fitz Osborne. And Fitz Osborne was a terrible person by all accounts. But Orderick often tries to lay the blame for William's worst actions on his companions. And this whole thing feels very in line with William's style of punitive impoverishment and destruction. So maybe this was Fitzosborne's idea, but if it was, it probably was only because William hadn't thought of it first. But regardless of who started it, going after the church is a dangerous move. I mean, kill the peasants, steal their cows, enslave their kids if you must. But don't. Look at me. Do not mess with those guys in fancy hats. And so, given this serious breach, you would expect swift action by the papacy. And swift action was indeed undertaken. I mean, this guy's dudes had already plundered the minster at York. Then they desecrated it. Then they burned the city that housed it. And poor old Archbishop Eldred of York had died shortly thereafter. And now... 
William was bringing that same sort of level-headed leadership to every church and monastery in England. Even more shocking, King William showed no shame for his actions here. In fact, far from being concerned about how the papacy would view these attacks on God's many houses, William instead reached out to Pope Alexander II and requested that he send him a legate. You see, William had had it up to here with the English, and he wanted to get rid of the last remaining English archbishop, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury. And if he could get rid of the rest of the high-ranking English clergy too, that would be great. Now, naturally, when William sent this request, he insisted that he was just looking to reform the English church. Because reformation sounds way better than segregation. But if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and enacts a policy of extermination and exclusion based on ethnic antipathy, it's a shitty fucking duck. And as if to prove this point, you have William's appointment of Turold as the new abbot of Peterborough. Now, Turold was a man born for knighthood. However, as a child, he'd been sent to a monastery instead. But in spite of this setback, Turold still tried to live his best life. When William invaded, Turold went with him. When William fought at Hastings, Turold was there. And he wasn't praying in the back. He was fighting. And in thanks for his service, William appointed Torold as the new abbot of Malmesbury in 1067, replacing the local English abbot. And the new Norman monk happily looted and oppressed his new domain with so much enthusiasm that two years later, William declared that Torold deserved someone worthy of fighting. And the East Anglians and the monks of Peterborough would be perfect for that. So he appointed him as the new abbot of Peterborough. And chuffed, Torold took to his new position with characteristic zeal. When he rode into Peterborough, he didn't do it on a donkey or some other modest way. Nor did he arrive with a complement of monks ready to spread the word of God and apply those much-promised ecclesiastical reforms. No, that would be lame. Instead, Turold arrived with 160 fully armed knights. And while it isn't unheard of for abbots to have a guard, this was ridiculous. This was well beyond the norm. And it was telegraphing to everyone that Turold wasn't here to govern. He was here to dominate. And whatever he was planning on doing was going to be unpopular. And man, it really was. The chroniclers were so appalled by Torold's behavior that we actually have a pretty good view of the man. We're told that he saw the abbey not as a house of God or as a place for contemplation and intellectual development, but as a source for personal wealth. And he subjugated 46% of the properties held by Peterborough and turned them into his own piggy bank. He also doesn't appear to have had much of an interest in living a quiet life of peace. And when he arrived with knights, that wasn't a one-time thing to make a point. Instead, he created a permanent military service of knights at the Abbey, in perpetuity. And as a veteran of Hastings, I'm guessing that he didn't stay behind and pray when the knights were going out and doing knight things. This whole situation was unprecedented. 
other abbots didn't impose chivalric services upon themselves in their abbeys. Just Turald. And if you think he was just holding on to knights for personal protection, think again. All of this looting that the abbot was undertaking was noticed by other religious houses. And these abbeys would sometimes share relics with each other. Sort of like how modern museums will loan out exhibits, only with more magic and less informative placards. And so, if you were the abbot of one of those other English abbeys, and you were hearing of what Turald was up to, and then he asked you to send some of the loaned relics back, what would you do? Well, the monks of Ramsey tried to hold on to the relics. And I think that's totally reasonable. No one wants to see holy relics popping up on the medieval version of eBay. But this was Torald. And when the monks of Ramsey refused to send him the relics, Torald threatened to burn their churches to the ground. You know, like a monk. And that wasn't an isolated incident. He also had some kind of conflict with Abbot Baldwin of Bury St. Edmunds. And it sounds like Torald was actually pillaging Baldwin's shipments. And it was bad enough that Abbot Turald was actually ordered to stop f***ing around with Baldwin's stone deliveries and to allow the abbot to complete his church. So yeah, Turald was so extreme that even his courtly benefactors had to yank his chain on occasion. Like I said, Turald obviously wanted to be a knight or a baron, not a monk. And the scribes made their feelings about the guy quite clear. But he wasn't the only one. Geoffrey de Mowbray, the Bishop of Coutances, who accompanied William on his conquest, and who was credited with leading the Normans against the rebel English at Montacute. Well, as his title suggests, he was a bishop. But in case we missed it, Orderic also tells us quite directly that he was, quote, devoted more to knightly than to clerical activities, end quote. No kidding, Orderic. The guy was leading armies. And actually, Geoffrey played a rather significant role in William's regime. Because this was the version of Christianity that William was bringing to England. This was the kind of Christian peace that William was enacting. And Pope Alexander II, as the man who had greenlit all of this murder and theft, needed to do something about it. So he dispatched a legate led by Bishop Ermenfrid. And on April 4th of 1070, Bishop Ermenfrid, acting as the Pope's representative, held a synod to reestablish the Christian peace and authority in England. And he accomplished this by doing exactly what William asked and deposing Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury and also Bishop Athelmar of East Anglia and also a variety of English abbots. But then, he dealt with the issue of all of this theft and rape and murder that William's conquest had unleashed upon the English public. And so, again, as the Pope's representative, he issued the penitential ordinance. He said that as a matter of religious law, William and his men could still totally go to heaven. They just needed to do some minor penance. And penance is actually a very loosely defined term. I mean, remember, feeling bad can be a form of penance. And the ordinance doesn't bother to offer any clarity on that matter, possibly because there's one particular kind of penance that was rather well known. 
giving money to the church or building church properties. And wouldn't you know it, William got right to work constructing an abbey to commemorate his successful regicide at Hastings. Now, ostensibly, he was doing this to make amends for killing Harold, but no effort was made to find his body and inter it there. And actually, there's much debate as to whether or not they even put the abbey on the right hill. And that should tell you exactly how seriously William and his men took this ordinance. But I'll tell you what they did take seriously. Those ecclesiastical vacancies. And they weren't done making them yet. Barely over a month later, at another synod, they deposed Bishop Athelrich of Selsey, and then arrested and imprisoned Bishop Athelrich of Durham. And John of Worcester tells us that the men hadn't committed any crime that religious councils or civil courts could convict them of. And while William and his allies did invoke canon law, like the prohibition against marriage, it was a fig leaf. And there were contemporary figures who committed the very same alleged crimes that they were accused of and who would continue to do so for the rest of their lives without experiencing any sort of repercussions. But armed with this capricious use of the law, William and his allies were able to strip these men of their positions, and then they worked quickly to fill them with continental figures, just like they had done at Peterborough Abbey and so many other houses. And this effort included placing his ally, Lanfranc, as the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and William's chaplain, Thomas of Bayeux, as the new Archbishop of York. And to be clear, what they were doing here was bolder and far more blatant than what they had been doing at Peterborough and Malmesbury. The scale of these ousters were unlike anything the English clergy had ever seen. And William wasn't just going after minor figures. He was going after the highest-ranked figures in English ecclesiastical life. And with his sham excuses, he wasn't even trying to hide his motives. This was naked political retribution. And actually, I think the obviousness of it was the point. William wasn't just ousting the English from positions of power. He was also ensuring that everyone in England knew that his power was absolute and that he would wield it to get revenge if given the opportunity. He could murder the North. He could oust church figures and show trials. He could do whatever he wanted. And there wasn't anything that you could do about it. Because not even the Pope was going to come to your aid. Resist William, and the best you could hope for is to lose your lands and your freedom. But chances are, you'd lose your life. William was sending a very clear message. And you could see why he would want to send it. That situation in Northumbria had been an existential crisis for the Norman Lord. And he had been very lucky to have survived it. So he needed to keep the English cowed because otherwise, they might realize how bad his position was. I mean, Edgar was in Scotland taking shelter with King Malcolm, who had just recently shown a complete willingness to make war upon England. And meanwhile, across the Channel, William's son, Robert, had failed to hold Maine, and instead, it had been broken off from Norman control and was now under the command of Geoffrey de Maine. And then there was the issue of the Danes. That Danish fleet, led by Swain's half-brother, Asbjorn, was supposed to raid selected portions of the English coastline throughout the winter and then depart England in the spring. And it was spring. And yet they were still here, 
happily floating in the Humber. Even worse, they weren't alone. Instead, a new fleet of Danes had arrived and joined them, and it was led by King Swain Estherson of Denmark, as well as his son, Canute. All the fears were coming true. King Swain had a claim on England through his uncle, Canute. He also had English allies, and it turned out that what William had bought off with bribery was just a portion of the Danish fleet, just the advance force that had come to prepare the way for the full royal invasion. And it was an invasion that was now here. And the Northumbrians, what was left of them, did in fact welcome King Swain. But despite all of that, rather than rushing off to war, the fleet stayed in the Humber. I suspect that it was painfully obvious that they had just arrived far too late, and that in Swain's absence, William had used that time to devastate the North to such a degree that the region was now littered with the bodies of the very same people who Swain was relying on to propel him to the throne. Even worse, his half-brother, Asbjorn, hadn't done a very good job of hiding the bribe he'd accepted from William in exchange for standing down and allowing that massacre to go forward. And this revelation would actually culminate in King Swain declaring his brother an outlaw. But here, in the short term, what it meant was that Swain was desperately short on allies. His brother, who should have been his most trusted commander, was instead an untrustworthy shitheel who would sell out his king for a payday. And what was supposed to be the launching point for his invasion was instead a charnel house of horrors. This was a bad situation. So, if you're Swain, what do you do? I mean, he was all in on this invasion. He had launched two separate fleets to see it through. And now, he was here in person, with his son. If he just packed up and went back home, he'd look foolish. And in the 11th century, that could spell disaster for a king. So he had to turn this into a victory, somehow. Or at least save some face. So he split his forces. The king and a portion of his fleet would stay in the Humber, perhaps trying to gather recruits. I'm guessing that there were more than a few people hiding in the woods and wild places who would like a chance at some payback. But at the same time, it doesn't appear to have been going all that well. And I've read historians who've said that the Northumbrians had lost the will to fight after the harrying. And while that is possible... I think it's equally possible that after repeatedly watching nobles claim leadership roles of this rebellion, only to abandon them as soon as things got hard, maybe a lot of the people of the North still wanted to fight, but they just run out of trust for the nobles and felt their best way forward was to fight as Silvatici. And speaking of the Silvatici, when the Danish fleet split up, that other portion headed to the Fens and the people of the Fens had been fighting William and his knights for ages. And by this point, the East Anglians were all too aware of how every element of this regime, including even their abbots like Turold, were a threat to English life everywhere. So the local English welcomed the Danes into their number, because they, quote, expected that they were going to conquer all the country, end quote. And they had good reason to feel that way. Because among this rebel army was a guerrilla fighter, 
a man who had been eluding King William and causing him all manner of problems for years. And he was just getting started. And we'll tell his story next time in episode 419, The Wake. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. Thanks for listening.